Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Stella O'Malley, who is an Irish psychologist. In 2018, Channel 4 released a documentary titled Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. And Stella O'Malley was, I guess, the central voice in that documentary. Stella experienced severe gender dysphoria when she was growing up, and then she moved past that. And she wanted to take an opportunity on my channel to explore that a little bit more more and talk about her concerns as a psychologist for the youth of today and how identity and diagnosis are interrupting on some levels the development of a sense of self. So I hope that this finds you well stocked and not panicking and I hope that you're healthy and you know take a little break, take a little walk while you're experimenting with what us introverts call normal life but what the media at this point in time is calling social distancing. Here's Stella O'Malley. So you're in Dublin now. I am in Dublin. Uh, I'm I'm from Dublin. I'm actually in the bedroom I grew up in because uh, oh. yeah. So my mum is sick and I thought I'd be in Offaly, which is in rural Ireland where I live, for this interview, but I'm not. I'm looking after my ma and talking to you. <laughs> hmm. Does it bring back memories to be in that room then? Because that's what we're kind of nominally going to speak yeah. about. Yeah, well, isn't that funny? Because, I, well, obviously I stay here fairly often, but talking to you about what I presume we're going to be talking to, I'd say it's kind of strange and appropriate to be in this room. Because it's my bedroom for my entire childhood. In the article that you sent, you, you speak about a panel that you went to about what it is to be a woman in this day and age. And I think it was during the filming or towards the end of the filming oh, yeah. of this. And yeah. you guys were protested. Yeah. And I remember there was this one transgender individual that I interviewed because they were in this documentary being rather violent or at least uh, got physical. I wonder if it's the same person. They wrote a little article in the... Yeah, in the garden. Yeah. Yeah, it is the same person. And I was really pleased when that person wrote that article because uh, we had that experience and it was horrible and it was harrowing and sad. And, you know, then we moved, you know, we, we recorded lots of other things for the next six months. And then the film went out. And then that person, I can't think of her name. But anyway, um, yeah, that person uh, had, had was, wrote a beautiful article saying that she was ashamed about the violence and she was shocked to see herself on screen. And her granny had basically said, you should be ashamed hmm. of yourself. And then she, she rose to that challenge and wrote about it very eloquently. And I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled. I had her on and she was very... Uh and we just spoke through that stuff and spoke about her kind of de-radicalization or kind of maturation. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed a lot with the radicals, I, I began my kind of journalism focusing on college students and um, with regards to American race relations. But I moved away from the race relations to focus on transgenderism because, one, because it's, it's kind of the same, uh, the activist side has kind of the same patterns of behavior, and, and it doesn't have that, uh, that entrenched racial history that gets, makes the conversation almost impossible for me to, like, actually navigate. So that, one of the things that I was happy to speak with about was to show that that process of maturation and you know going from an ideology that that proves that you're right or just assumes that you're right so that you can act however you want into a more self-reflexive uh you know being yeah. a human being kind of thing isn't it fascinating when when if you have been radicalized it takes a lot of courage to come back and uh, I don't. Hmm. I don't think it's it's anybody who can do it. It's much simpler to stay radicalized once you've been radicalized, and stay with the slogans and stay in on the simpler route, road 
they go into the complicated, messy ground, which is what is required if you're going to be de-radicalized. But I'm surprised to hear that race relations are so entrenched. That's the innocent in me. In, in that America? Was, yeah. Oh, geez, you don't know. <laughs> really? It's really heavy stuff out here. Um, and there's... There's so much uh, built up around it that there's a lot of people with vested interest in keeping racial tensions as high as possible. And there's a lot of different rhetorical maneuvers that are constantly being developed that slow down the ability to actually engage with the ideas or to, you know, to, to navigate that. Um, so I, I just I couldn't I, I, I reached kind of like the end of what I could actually feel like I could do any sort of movement towards reconciliation. So race relations are more entrenched and more polarized than trans relations. Well, the, the trans stuff is smaller. It's easier to get the head around and it, and it's kind of goes across. Uh, it doesn't have the history that yeah. American race relations have. So yeah. And it's kind of yeah. newer too, and it's it's coming out of left field for a whole lot of people. So there's a lot to like learn about and yeah. discover. Yeah. And I remember somebody once saying to me, uh, "Never has he come across an issue." Sorry about this clicking. Never has he come across an issue where you presume you're this, and you're actually completely that. That it's it's, it's so kind of everything you know is wrong. If you follow me, if you presume you're a liberal, you presume you're going to believe A, B, and C. And then you realize if you penetrate deeper, the more liberal would be this. And it's, it's like everything hmm. you know is wrong. It turns on your head, everything, which hmm. makes it so compelling, I think. So when did the, that film come out, The Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk? Uh, it came out in November 2018. So that was about um, oh. 15, 15 months ago. Okay. Yeah. And what's been your um, experience since then with this topic? I thought I'd probably leave it behind. You know, I have a nice life and I, I thought I'd explored it in the film and I'd kind of given my views and I'd done my little bit maybe to help people and uh, I'd leave it be. And that hasn't happened at all. Hmm. I've become a lot more embroiled in it and, you know, kind of reluctantly. But, you know, when somebody asks you a question, I suppose I can't refuse it. And I've just continuously been kind of going further into it. And um, I know people would be thinking, let it go, Stella. Like, I'd have obviously a lot of friends who are therapists and they're like, let it go. <laughs> You've done your, your thing. And it's like... It's, you know, as Lisa Marciano, who I saw you interviewed, she said, you know, it's the biggest ethical question of our industry. And I think it is a real, very profoundly ethical question of, do you join in the ethical debate when you think something awful is happening? Or do you just stay out because professionally it would be a lot more um, safer to stay out of it? Mm-hmm. And what what's the risk for you professionally in Ireland or even socially in Ireland? What's the climate around that in Ireland? In Ireland, it's fascinating, you know, because England is there in the middle of these kind of wars and Ireland is staying right out of it. I remember Brian Friel was asked, you know, what does it mean to be Irish? And he said, not English. And <laughs> that's very much our, our kind of mentality in Ireland. And so I would argue an awful lot of people in Ireland are basically staying well out of it, looking at England and saying that's a hellish, very complicated and polarised, and l let's l just be liberal here in Ireland and let everything happen. And I think that comes from a really nice place insofar as it's, it's, it's a very welcoming and uh, accepting and tolerant attitude, and I agree with it. It's come in very much on the back of we, we used to be a very intolerant, very bigoted, very narrow-minded kind of society because we were so kind of entrenched with the Catholic Church and entrenched okay. with an awful lot of old-fashioned ideals. And then we've kind of come out of that, and now our, our Prime Minister is gay, and there's so many lovely things that happened. We, you know, legalised gay marriage, and in the middle of all that, when we were legalizing gay marriage on a kind of a sweep of kind of liberal 
thinking in the last few years. We also, you know, made self-identity, you know, uh, kind of the MO in Ireland. Yeah. And so everybody is, when your question was how has it been response, everybody is looking at me saying there's no problem here. And I'm like, yeah, well, actually there is. I see a lot of teenagers who are kind of devastated. I, I'm a psychotherapist and I see them in my clinic and they're devastated. They don't know who they are and what they are. And it has impacted a lot of people and there are a lot of people who are distressed with gender dysphoria and it isn't all a happy place and just because we're our laws are tolerant doesn't mean that everybody is happy so i hmm. suppose i think we've been very mindless in ireland and it it isn't madly to our credit to be mindless i think we could do with a lot more considered and intelligent um analysis of what is the right way forward when you when you relax the rules too far, it wreaks havoc on young people, by which I mean a little bit of rails or lines or boundaries is actually really beneficial for young people. And if there's if, if it's a free for all, especially with identity, if it's just a free for all, a lot of there there might be a lot of young people who suffer because of the lack of structure. That's a really interesting point because when you come from a, a world that I come from, where you know there was so much emphasis on conservatism and you know family values and your family and all this, that you kind of immediately turn away from it and you see it as just old-fashioned. And yet, as you get older, you think, "Whoa, there's a wealth and there's a wealth in that. There's a wealth in knowing where you come from. It. There's a wealth that you can throw the baby out with the bathwater." And I feel that that is what happened in a lot of levels in, in Ireland, that we were a deeply traditional society. And now we've just kind of flung ourselves into liberalism. And that was just uh, over yeah. the last, what, two, three, four decades? How, how, yeah. Yeah. how quick was that I'd process? say in the last, in the 90, since the 90s, we've become very liberal. And I'm great, we, I'm delighted we have, but I think we've lost something. I think we've lost something along the way. And there was some real merit in it and I, I, I think there's still, you know, there's still lots of obviously <laughs> old fashioned people around, but there is there is a there's an intelligence and a wealth of wisdom in tradition that I didn't appreciate when I was younger. And the, apparently I read, which I thought was fascinating, the average age for somebody to become conservative is 48. I'm 45. <laughs> oh no, it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be hit with the conservative push. I doubt it, because I'm intensely liberal. But I, hmm. I think it's very interesting that so many of my friends have noticed become more conservative as they got older. And kind of are suddenly hearkening back to the days of a more conservative Ireland. But mm. I, I think something you just said there, I just want to go back to that the teenagers, I don't think this is anything to do with conservatism and everything to do with good mental health, which is teenagers and children need boundaries and they do not need their head wrecked about what identity they are. And, you know, in my first book, Cottonwood Kids, I was all about, you know, this labelling of children is going to impact us. It's a huge issue. If you label kids left, right and centre, they're, you're really shaping their psyche in profound ways and it's really we don't know what we're getting into by labeling identities when they're eight or when they're 12 how we're shaping them we don't know because we're, we're new to this and I'm not talking about gender identity I'm just talking about labels and identities that children are kind of being it's being thrust upon their heads and I think it's having a huge impact on them and I, I'm really concerned about it. And then gender identity has jumped into this. And so, you know, kids mm. come to me and I, do, I don't know whether I'm this. And, they, you know, they name all the different identities they could have. And they're worrying about it. They are genuinely concerned and genuinely lost and trying to find who they are. And they're trying to find yeah. it through a prism of identity as opposed to you're one of the seven billion. You're one of the eight billion. That's who you are. <laughs> hmm. You know what I mean? There's nobody else like you. And so trying to find the right descriptive terms and diagnosis or identity that makes it you, it's, it's, a false, it's a false journey and an awful lot of teenagers are on it. And I think it's really causing them a huge amount of distress. But like, you know, teenagers have always been distressed. So, you know, yeah. and to look for your identity is exactly appropriate between 12 and 20. That's psychologically 
what you should be doing. So they're certainly yeah. doing it, but I think it's being really complicated by the identity yeah. issue. Yeah. Yeah, the, that uh, Joseph Campbell book, The Hero of Many Faces, kind of makes an argument that there's a pattern of behavior that can manifest through many different cultures, but there's something that we did, and I want to explore more of this with you, of allowing identity or the concept of identity to like move into a carnival, a chaotic, uh, you know, free for all that, that lacks true depth or lacks a, a attachment to a tradition. And, and I'm, I'm Irish by descent and I've done a sizable amount of research into you know the druidic culture and the celtic culture and and the irish uh, the old school like very the ancient irish tradition of like like how education was formed where you ended up doing a whole bunch of memorization and like for the poets like poetry was just embedded in in your culture and and uh, so there's all this creativity, but it's it's it seems to be lacking that. What what do you mean when you started to talk in the Cottonwall Kids about identity? What 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 is that? Where did that come from? Are you talking about like goth punk? Uh, no, I'm talking about ADHD, ADD, oh, OCD, okay. autism, ASD. So diagnosis as identity. Yes. Huh. That a lot of kids who come to me are keeping their, when they're teenagers, when they're a kid, they're totally cool with their identities and their, when I say it's identities, it's their diagnosis. But they've been almost, what's the word, um, given it. You know, my own kids have dyslexia and you can see that they kind of say, yeah, I'm dyslexic. <laughs> Do you know, you can see they own it a little bit. It's a, it's a very big concept to give to a kid. And you try to say you have dyslexia. You don't. You aren't. You aren't dyslexic. Mm. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a real big issue because I see a lot of teenagers who hide those diagnoses when they're older. So they 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 were completely cool about getting it when they were eight, and then now they feel it's embarrassing. And I think we need to kind of go back and look at all of that and how to bring in diagnosis and how to bring in everything to do with labeling has has been arrived in the last 20 years into children's lives and we it's very helpful for parents to understand children but i'm not sure it's very helpful for children to understand themselves because i feel it confines them a little bit i wonder if if you're diagnosing uh that the teenagers are embarrassed by their conditions, not because they have the condition, but because of the uh, of the identity. It's like a, it's like a piece of clothing that's embarrassing to them. It, yeah. it actually has less to do with the actual status of them of having a, a disorder or a, a disability in some way, but the 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 social ramifications of having to being a part of that club that they they don't want to be a part of that club. Yeah, they don't want to be part of that club, and they the, I I. I I feel they've been thrust into it. And I don't know how, I don't have a solution about this. I'm just, I'm just concerned that over-categorizing of us all hasn't really got us anywhere. And I know an awful lot of doctors, and I really like it, that they say, you know, you might have autistic traits, you might have OCD traits. And I think that's a much wider and much more progressive way to go with this and the very same with gender dysphoria or, or trans you know if you have traits of so that you can work with that and you can kind of become who you are without yeah. becoming the the archetypal category because i think that's very confining did you uh, did do you have experience of that with your own self like being uh you know wrestling with identity um after the gender dysphoria, like in your teenage years? No. your early 20s? No. No, no. It didn't come up to me at all. I, I wasn't diagnosed with anything, really. I probably could have been diagnosed with a whole lot of things, but I haven't been diagnosed with anything. I, I, I would be, you know, very reluctant to diagnose myself with gender dysphoria for, as a kid, except I've seen all the kind of traits. I've seen the DSM. I've seen the checklist and... I do know I, I, I could have ticked all of the the traits on that 
list. But I came from a world, 1980s Ireland, like certainly nobody was bringing me off to be diagnosed anyway. Nobody's bringing anybody off to be diagnosed at that age. And that's what I was talking about earlier when I said there was a wealth in it. There was a huge vibe of let them be, let them off, they'll find themselves. And while on one level you could say a lot of people suffered under that because they felt lonely and abandoned in their distress, it also might have added depth and they might have found themselves in their own individuality in a very stronger, much more solid kind of way. And that would be, I would argue, me, that I did come Mm. through. Now, lots of people got lost in that, so I'm not saying that's the way to do it. But it is interesting. It is interesting that, you know, let them off and benign neglect and things like that can actually work very well for some people. We haven't figured out who. And certainly uh, Cotton Wollen doesn't seem to work out very well at all it's uh i guess as a balancing actor there, there always needs to be like a, a meta study or a meta conversation about the way in which we uh, uh, approach distress and being able to tell the difference or being able to tell who's going to benefit from you know just being lonely and going on their own and who's going to benefit from having a label from from thinking about themselves as possessing certain traits of this group or or having a, a specific reason why they are distressed um, because so with right. the art uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria um, you know, phenomena that, that, that's a, still a loose term right now but th- there's these young women who it seems are going through all these physical changes and all this uh, emotional distress about their physical changes and they're presented with this out like this, this out which is a very solid specific uh, gender solution. dysphoria this is my solution. Well, it's the, the, the name, the problem is to give them a, a solution, but then attached to that solution is a whole wealth of other problems that, that don't necessarily actually solve anything. Yes. And you know, that name, the problem for the solution. That's so, it's such a dodgy concept. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Like you can, yeah. you can name the problem all you want. It doesn't mean you've got anywhere near the solution. Hmm. Having said that, I do remember when I explained to my daughter, my oldest girl, that she had a condition called dyslexia and her face just changed. And she said, can you tell my teacher and friends that? Hmm. And she said it very seriously as in, oh, thank you. Got it. Understand. Right. Now the world needs to know this about me and stop whining at me about spelling. (laughs) She was right, yeah. Yeah. So that was very interesting for me because I was like, oh, there's another side to this complex scenario that I've seen how it works in, in, in certain terms. But I also think, I wonder had I been diagnosed as a child, I think it would have shaped me. I think it would have shaped me a lot. And uh, so, so probably it's no wonder I'm a bit nervy around diagnosis as a result. So you, when we were chatting on Twitter, you said you you said that you hadn't really explored or spoken about the the distress of of wrestling with that. Am I a boy? Um, yeah. Or I'm a, a girl, and I was wondering if you you want to talk about that and how you ended up owning that distress and how. Yeah, yeah, I do want to because I think I haven't really said much about it. Um, uh, it would have been from the ages of about three, simply as far back as I can go, as I can remember, until I was about I I don't know until around about puberty, I'd say. So maybe 10, I don't know. It's hard to remember the ages. But I do know, like, for the first few years, imagine you're three, four, and five. I was quite comfortable. I was a boy. <laughs> the world had it wrong. And that's fine. <laughs> and I was very good at being a boy in, in my world. In my, in my head, I was very good at being a boy. And I was completely comfortable with the situation. I'd imagine around about six or seven, I started to come to consciousness about the world around me. And I started to realize, oh, parents and adults in the room are are being slightly patronizing here. I wouldn't have had that language, but I certainly had those thoughts if you follow me. I wouldn't have been able to articulate them. And I was aware that there was almost half smiles going on between adults about me. And this made me murderous. How dare they doubt my living reality 
<laughs> I certainly hadn't those words. But how dare they deny my existence was where I was at. I was I was mortified, and that they might have. I, I probably, if I was to go deeper into it, I'd say I felt found out. And I don't think there's a, anything more horrible than feeling found out in the world. Like it's it's, it's a pretty horrible feeling. And I I feel I I was I felt found out. But I looked away, but I think it, it turned the whole feeling of I'm a boy into something much darker and much more aggressive and much more angry, and much more, yeah, I'm a boy. Have you got a problem? Do you know what I mean? I was coming out fighting then, like. And I think uh, it, it, it's very interesting, and I don't think it's been explored enough about how much we try to save face in this world and how much... I remember, and you remember, I've no doubt, when you're a kid, how awful it was to feel you're being laughed at by adults and that you're not being taken seriously and you're being a bit silly. And I know that sounds really childish and silly. When you're living it, it's not. It's horrible. You know what I mean? It really was. And I, I was very angry at them, but I didn't really know how to kind of navigate that. And then all the kids in, the, in my world used to come up to me saying, are you a boy or a girl? And I'd sometimes say, a boy, and look at them very aggressively I was very aggressive <laughs> and sometimes say neither so I was quite non-binary and um, I didn't know how to navigate it it used to be that question haunted me from my childhood so I was obviously known around the town as that kid you know that kid who doesn't you know is she a boy or a girl or is this you know what I mean is he a boy or a girl I know a good few people good few people have said to me they thought I was a boy for the first six months of knowing me and you know I very much presented as a boy and that was fine in 1980s Dublin you just didn't comment you know you just nobody commented on it but like I say I was aware of those half smiles then I became a little bit older and I realized this is problematic you know I started to become aware of this is problematic I'm saying this when I'm that Huh. Now, how how do I get out of that? It was a disaster. I remember feeling really, really lost and alone and not knowing what to do and feeling very disturbed and very distressed, genuinely very, very all over the place about it and not knowing what I should do. I remember one girl, it's interesting because I've never really seen her since, but I was about, I'd say I was about eight and she was probably about 14 in this room, actually, funnily enough, in this bedroom. And she was having a sleepover. I didn't know her. She was my sister's friend, six years older than me. And she she was very aggressive. And she said to me, you'd want to watch yourself. I was like you when I was a kid and I couldn't get out of it. And I, I, I became in a prison there and you're stuck and you'd want to watch yourself. And I was just stood against the wall, just over there, just stood against the wall like, I didn't even answer her. I didn't even go, uh, I didn't say anything. I just went. And she really, she really named the problem for the solution. She really, that was a major point in my life. Wow. She said, yeah, little does she know that I suddenly realized I'm in trouble. I've lived my whole life saying this. And I know people say, ah, you're just a kid. Well, it was my whole life. It was my, I, I don't see very much difference between me and then, and me then, except I'm much more articulate. But I was absolutely in trouble. Imagine if your whole life you'd live like this, and now you're starting to suspect, Jesus Christ, I have to be this. And how the hell do I get over there? It was horrible. It was really horrible. So what I did, so around about that age, maybe eight, nine, ten, I started to go very quiet People would ask me it, and I became out very hostile, very much. I'm a boy, I'm a boy. Probably at my most intensely hostile and aggressive was when I was most unsure of myself. And when I was much freer and like, yeah, yeah, I'm a boy, was when I was very comfortable with it. But when I was very angry and distressed was when I was much more uh, overtly, I'm a boy, and I'd say to people, and I was very... I was, became very angry, and I can see why, because I'd got myself into an awful situation. Talk about painting yourself into a corner. I'd got myself into an awful situation. And at the very same time, puberty was happening, and my body was taking a mind of its own. Yeah. Just, 
like if I'd walked in the toilet and grown another head, I don't think I would have been surprised. It was, <laughs> was happening to me. <laughs> Sweet suffering, Jesus. And so all thoughts of you're, you're, you're a boy was were going into kind of, you're a mess. Do you know what I mean? You're just a, what is this? You're just a mess. And it was horrible and incredibly difficult to come back from. And I think, you know, when people are treating children with gender dysphoria, and I'm talking about children as opposed to teenagers, but I'd say it's very similar. The, the saving face, the feeling of how can I get out of here with my pride intact? How can I? That's really hard. I don't know what the solution to that is. That everything you've yeah. said doesn't add up. And we've been kind of nodding along thinking you'll come to your senses soon. Yeah. Unfortunately, for better or worse, I don't think you can uh, save somebody from being humbled by life. It's kind of a necessary process. <laughs> but I want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. I'll go and be a painter. <laughs> in, your, in your article, you mentioned that the being a boy or claiming to be a boy was a defense mechanism for the, the difficulty of your life. Could you describe, like, what was it about being a boy that was so important? Was it just that people would treat you differently or that you were able to plug into the world in a special manner that you didn't think was available to you as a, as a girl? I think the latter, but I'm not sure because I'm kind of um, a little bit unsure. I've thought about this a lot in the last few years, what made me want to be a boy. You see, it would have been before I came to consciousness, if you follow me. My instinct tells me okay. it was what you said, that there was a power with being a boy in that old-fashioned society that I said, that's where I'm going. Okay. I'm joining the power group. You lot can stay over there. I was very uh, dismissive of girls. And by the way, I was very dismissive of tomboys. I used to think, look at those stupid girly, girly tomboys trying to be a boy. This is how you do it. So I was very much in my, very powerful in the feeling of being a boy. It was very much, that's where I was relating to it. Yeah, I think so. So when, when you were coming of age, or when you were that that age, you were actually in a society that was very conservative, that had very strict gender roles compared to now. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah, you know, on another level, you'd say in the 1990s, they brought in the pink and the blue, didn't they? And, you know, it was such a marketing phenomenon. Okay. You know what I mean? So I missed all that. So like, you know, okay. I wasn't playing Lego, but had I been playing Lego, it wouldn't have been pink or blue. You know what I mean? It would have been that non-genderized world. But yeah, I, I could play football and I was good at football, but there was no way I could have joined a team because the teams were for the boys. So it was certainly yeah. the, the system was old fashioned. But, you know, there was a lot less, a lot less sparkles, a lot less pink, a lot less of that crap going on. You know. <laughs> So with that in mind, did you, was part of your uh, owning your, your womanhood, uh, experimenting with uh, the aesthetics of the feminine in your teenage years? Was that a, a way of coping? No, no. no. I was very, okay. no, I was very busy trying to say, can we just forget that? Can we just not gender me at all? <laughs> can we just, uh, just not just not comment, not look. Can I just wear what I would now call gender-neutral clothes and let nobody comment on me, on my clothes, and on how I look? Because I'm in the middle of trying to come back from another planet, and mm. I don't want anybody to comment. And if somebody said something, either, you look well, or, oh, you've changed, I would suffer mortification because they'd wow. noticed me. I felt found out, you get me? I did not want anybody to notice that I'd stopped talking about being a boy that I'd started to wear ordinary clothes that could technically be called girls clothes and let's nobody mention this and I remember once a friend of mine who she was trying to be nice to me and uh, she was about, I was about 14 or 15 and she said we can only go to this restaurant it was her dad's restaurant if you wear a skirt like it's very posh so you have to wear a skirt oh my god God, I thought I was going to die. Oh, like, no. I really did. Yeah, I know it sounds so stupid. <laughs> well, no. It, some females that I've spoken to about this was that they 
they were trying to avoid the male gaze or there was something in the, the male gaze that demeaned them or, or being uh, sexually attractive uh, was uh, demeaning to them. It, you, it seems like you're describing something other than unwanted male attention and putting on a skirt. Um, yeah, you're right. I think you're right. I don't think the male gaze was on my mind at all. I think I was so busy embarrassingly now I'm thinking about it saving face <laughs> I don't think it was the male gaze I don't think it was any because think about it it started at such a young age like two or yeah. three you know it was, it was no it was I think I was going towards the power then I'd got myself into a situation that I didn't particularly want to be in and I wanted to come back from it not because I wanted to be a girl but because I didn't see any other option okay do you know I, I didn't see there was an option that I could transition there was no option. It wasn't there as an option. So my only option was to come back from saying I was a boy because actually that doesn't wash in society. And somewhere along from eight onwards, I was realizing that doesn't wash. People are going to smile at that. And yeah. so you can't do that. So now can you just come back from that and just be like ordinary people who nobody mentions whether you're a girl or a boy. You're just an ordinary person. And it's just not commented on. And so I tried desperately to live this kind of life where just me being a girl was completely irrelevant for a long okay. time. And yeah. then around about, I suppose, I suppose about 16, suddenly fellas were fancying me and I realized the massive power of being a sexual woman. And I went, wow. <laughs> <laughs> And I miss all this. <laughs> and so I embraced it. <laughs> oh, interesting. And yeah, yeah, it is actually. So by 16, I'd completely gone through it. So that's a long period of pulling off that plaster. But I know for a fact at 16, I'll tell you why, because actually something happened. And so I can date it. I went away with my boyfriend for a summer. And I lost a lot of weight. Part of that kind of, you know, person I was wearing these big jumpers and I'd weight on me and I never ever cut my hair and if I did it would have been me just <laughs> like with a scissors like I did nothing I'd never wear makeup you know I was very kind of but in the middle of all that some fella fancied me imaginely <laughs> can't imagine why and I went away with him and he was mad about me he just adored me and I lost a lot of weight when I was away with him and uh, then when I came back my friend um brought me to she lived she worked as a hairdresser and she brought me to her hairdresser and she cut my hair and dyed it. I'm not naturally red I'm naturally your color and she dyed it red and gave me a fringe and cut it and it was like I just suddenly became really just like I'm pretty and I remember I walked back I walked into the chipper uh, on the way back from that haircut and uh the guy, the guy, he was a lorry driver and he was standing queuing at the chipper and he turned around and he went, you're gorgeous. And I was like, yes, wow. I am. <laughs> it was fabulous. It was lovely. And it was a real celebration of having been through a really dark first 16 years to being, yeah. wow, this is gorgeous and lovely. Wow. And just, just light. Light is what it was. So that, that sounds profoundly like a like a Persephone or uh, kind of mythology, like where you're down and then you kind of came out and you you, bl you blossomed in a it's profound cold. way. What was yeah. it to be a woman then? Did you have to discover what it was or did you just own it and it was secondary to your personality? Was it an identity that you wore or was it a set of attributes and powers that you had access to, like a palette? Yeah, I'd say I, I, I was still always going to be a slightly boyish woman, you know what I mean? But yeah, I, I, I owned it completely. I'd say I owned it totally. From then on, I was very, very, I am a woman and I'm proud to be a woman, you know, <laughs> very definitely. And yeah, it was, like you say, Persephone, it was, it was really, I was in the darkness and I came, it was, there's a lightness that came upon me at around about that age that is just so lovely compared to the heaviness of the girl who would have been in this bedroom. Do you know what I mean? Just yeah. everything was so heavy. <laughs> and then just suddenly life, life was lighter and fun. And I can see it sometimes with, the, with people who desist. 
you know, the people who desist it. You can see there's a lightness, a fun and a lighter touch to life that I really remember kind of thinking, oh, there's a whole exploration of being a woman. But I'd say I was a very, I'd say I was very comfortable being a woman, but I didn't, I don't know if you're kind of half asking me this, so I'll answer it just in case you are half asking me it. I didn't suddenly become some sort of dolly bird who was mad into makeup and wearing heels and tottering around. (laughs) I, I never went that way. It was never my way of being a woman, but I certainly enjoyed wearing dresses and very much enjoyed my figure and enjoyed male attention with absolute bring it on yeah <laughs> do you think that having that experience that childhood uh, is what propelled you towards working in psychology is that kind of what informed you about wanting to do this work oh uh, yeah that, that but not only that loads of different things that happened to me in my life i'd say informed me um yeah but that was the start and it was a very weird little start it's funny later on when I became an adult and I would say to people oh yeah I used to be a tomboy people would be surprised like really are they'd say oh yeah I see it in you type thing and then people would often say to me oh yeah I used to be and I actually stopped saying it to people because I realized no 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 my experience was nothing like oh I used to climb trees and play football I I realized no no I was in a way I became self-protective of a really dark experience that happened to me and I wasn't going to let it be turned into, oh, you used to be a tomboy, so did I. Ooh, high five, sister. So it's just, I don't know why I suddenly felt the urge to tell you that, but it was a way of me realizing. Actually, I went something, a whole world deeper and darker. Huh. And I came out of it. And it was lovely to come out of it. But to call it tomboy is, isn't, while it's a quick word, it's not actually a descriptive word of what I, I was coming from. That wasn't what you asked me, though. What did you ask no, me? No, no, that's fine. It's just, I think we've already retread this question, but, like, why do you think that you went, you... you oh, why do I become so, a psychotherapist? No, well, why, why do you think that that being a boy, wanting a boy, was so intrinsic to your experience? I think you tried to answer that already, but yeah, you, the way I'm you're ever, describing it, it's so profoundly deep. Yes, it was. Thank you. It really was. And I don't think I've really explained that to many people. That it was really heavy and powerful and not nice and deeply uncomfortable. You know that way? You know that illness that I think is a Joni Mitchell has where she has the mushrooms? She thinks she has mushrooms going out of her skin. You know that thing? Mm, no? No. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, it's... I think I'm right. Joni Mitchell, many people have this illness. I think it's a a mental illness. I'm not sure if it is. And they think there's things growing out of their skin. It's just like from the very core of your body, it's all wrong. Everything about me is wrong. And it it, it is a horrible thing. So I have so much sympathy for anybody with gender dysphoria because it's like, yeah, everything about me is wrong. Can I be that? Yeah. Over there. Okay. Yeah. But why I became a psychotherapist would have been for a load of other, loads and loads of different reasons. And I didn't become a psychotherapist after school. After school, I, I left and, and lived on my own and, you know, I had a clothes shop. And I didn't become, I didn't study to be a psychotherapist until I was about 30. Huh. Yeah, Ooh, like a clothes shop is like secondhand, or you you yeah, made clothes, yeah, yeah. or okay. I I, huh. I I left school and I was, I was selling jewelry on the street. I was a street trader. And then I, I had a stall in the market, man. And I was uh, very hippie and uh, really liked life. And ultimately, after a few years, I got a shop that was a lot of secondhand clothes. Not only secondhand clothes, but a lot of it. Loved it. But after a few years of that, in my 20s, I suppose I, I wanted a bit more depth. And I sold the shop and studied. Why? What? What? Was there an initiation of that, or just like kind of a growing? Like, what am I doing? Uh, I need to do something uh, more substantial. Yeah, I, I need to do something a bit deeper than you know, twelve XL, ten L. You know, oh jeez. <laughs> I remember just thinking, oh man, there's more to life than this. Even though I love the rhythm of the shop, I love getting up and you get up at, you go to, to the shop at eleven, open it up close it at six it was very much it was in the center of dublin so it was very much a social hub and it was great crack i did want a bit more depth in life and i went to this course no i went to an open evening where they talked about counseling and i went by the way i i went to loads of counselors in my 20s 
and uh, I, you know I would have had a lot of different problems and a lot of you know distress and um, I thought all the councils were diabolical and I used to think I could do better than this <laughs> continuously but my new I went to lots of different counsellors and psychotherapists and I consistently thought like, why are they asking me that that's a stupid question why is she asking me that uh. of course I could be annoyed with that and so in a way I often think I became a psychotherapist as a I a kind of a feeling, oh, hey, oh, Jesus Christ, I could do a lot better than them. <laughs> I'm deadly serious. Well, looking back, do you think that you were right in your assessment of their capabilities now that you're trained and practicing? Honestly, I do. I do. I think, yeah, I probably was a difficult client. I probably was very challenging. I still am. But I still think, yeah, there's a there's an awful lot of counsellors who, who do seem to do a lot of really distressing things. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know why, but you know, there's an awful lot of builders who do bad building work. Do you know what I mean? But I think the impact, and the research bears me out in this, the impact of bad counselling is, is so hurtful, so damaging. Hmm. You know, and I, I do think my instinct was correct that when I was in my twenties, they weren't handling me right. Who knows? I'd say it was hard work. Well, is it is it better to not go to counselling than to go to bad counselling? Believe it or not, yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's as far as I know. The research would say you're better off not going than having harmful counselling. Yeah, my favorite movie is The Departed um, by Scorsese. It's about a bunch of Boston police people. But one line in it that that's in it is that Irish people. Sigmund Freud said that Irish people are <laughs> immune to psychotherapy. Do you, do, you, do you think that the Irish uh, mindset is particularly difficult for psychologists to crack? You're right, because I would consider myself very typically Irish. <laughs> and I was definitely a very difficult client. I know, that always made me laugh that Freud said that. Yeah, there's a rebellious thing, you know, 800 years of oppression brought it, bring in us any authority is wrong. And, I, you know, the, the, the classic Irish nature of, well, why would I tell you that? You know what I mean? And I kind of huh. cute, cute whore. Do you know that phrase, the cute whore? Kind cute of thing whore? of Irish. Yeah. No. Cute. Cute whore. <laughs> as in, <laughs> I know it's, 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 a, it's very much a kind of Irish phrase, as in, you're, all, you're a bit clever and, you, you know, you're, you're kind of one step ahead of people and a little bit funny with it and never quite give everything away. And your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. And that doesn't oh, okay. work for psychotherapy. <laughs> you need to yeah, reveal no. yourself. <laughs> huh. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I just I identify with that if, if I really am. I mean, I'm like 80% Irish, and so I, I identify with that. I wondered that. I saw your name and I thought, voice. I wonder is he Irish? What are you giving your time to in the discussion around uh, gender dysphoria, trans issues, women's issues right now? What's the, what's the flashpoint right now for you? By a million billion miles, how we deal with the children. You know what I yeah. mean? That, that, that there's a condition has become suddenly incredibly common and it's gender dysphoria. And other conditions have happened in psychology and you know, they have kind of, as such, spread. If you look at, you know, bulimia and things like that, they have spread. So we, we know this happens with with psychological conditions and gender dysphoria is really, really rampant at the moment. And I don't know that we're, we're really treating the children very well with this. I think we're, we're messing with their heads and we need to be much gentler with them and much more, you know, that phrase, you know, first do no harm. I, I think we've lost. I think we've lost it. It's by far and away, by a million miles, the thing that distresses me. I really do think that you know, if you want to transition as an adult, you should be supported, and off you go. And I, I wish you well, and I hope society makes every single kind of move to welcome you. But I think with children, we just have to slow that right down. I think medically intervening in children's lives, then puberty blockers are really, really problematic. And I've thought that right from the beginning, and it's only when I really explored it and I realized in my own life, well, it was puberty that got me out of it. Hmm. And had I been offered a puberty blocker, I would have taken it faster than you could say. You know, I would have grabbed it. And had I, had I even heard the concept of it, I would have jumped at puberty blockers. And I don't think that would have been right for me. 
because I think it would have sent me on a medical path that would have been more difficult to come back from. Hmm. And uh, as it was, I came back from an emotional path, which I found incredibly hard to come back from. If I tried to come back from a, a, a medical path, yeah. would I have? I don't think so. And then I became so comfortable in myself. And I'm not saying that the trans life is worse than the cis life as such, but I am saying there's a very heavy medical burden to transitioning. And I'm glad that I don't have that burden because I didn't need it. You know what I mean? From the age of whatever onwards, it just was not an issue. It never came back. The gender dysphoria never came back. I know it stays with some people, but it never, not a trace of it ever came back. You know, I often think, you know, some people have depression and they get treated. They might get treated with talk therapy or they might get treated with medicine. And for some people, it never comes back. For some people, it stays and you have to try different ways to manage yeah. it. And, you know, it's similar. And some people, the right way to manage it for them might be to transition. That's fine. But stay, stay away from the kids. Yeah, modern society is, uh, we have the power of gods, but not a fraction of the wisdom. Or potentially the, the, the thousandfold more of the foolishness, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a real issue that because medical science can do it, they want to do it because that is stretching their professional competence and it's very interesting for them. Yeah. But that we're people. <laughs> Leave us alone. Like, you know, just because they can do it doesn't mean they should. Yeah. Thank you for opening up. Thank you for uh, exploring that with us. Maybe. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Benjamin. <laughs> How did you come across my stuff? Just through Twitter. Oh, I've or something? been watching you for ages. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Ah, oh, yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. I like your stuff. I've been watching. I don't know from the as soon as I got into all this, I suppose somewhere along the way. Okay. I thought, yeah. I didn't know. I heard you mentioned that you came from the race. The race. I, I'm still a bit stunned about that. I know I'm going to go off tonight and start looking that up. Oh, jeez. Like, I have a documentary on my channel if oh, you really want to be horrified. I will. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I will. Because, you know, it's, it's weird. We're coming into a world where we're getting so much more polarized. Like, even, like, if you look at the kind of veganism and stuff like that, that's becoming more polarized. Everything, every issue is becoming this kind of, you know, one or the other, and there's no middle ground. That's huh. right. Yeah. It's very immature. It's incredibly immature. Yeah, maybe it is. It does seem so inappropriate because the whole concept of life is messy. Nobody has the solution. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Do you? <laughs> what <No>. is it? <laughs> uh, I've made peace with the fact that I'm a fool. I just try to act wisely within my limits. <laughs> What's that? We're born of risen apes, you know, not fallen angels. Hmm. Did you say that again? We are born of risen apes, not fallen angels. That's yeah. a, some quote from way back, and we really are like we're we're just we're not far off the animal world, really, are we? No, we're just ambling along with a little bit more shellac on on top of our animal <laughs> nature, you know. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.